On this prequel episode, we've got our Don't Look Now fan poll follow-up. We're learning about authors who disappointed us, Roll Doll Edition, and previewing The Witches. Hello and welcome back to This Film Is Lit, podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. It's another week, it's another prequel, and it's the prequel to our Halloween episode. Katie, people voted... Mm-hmm. We're talking about it later, but we're doing The Witches 1990 edition. Yes. So look forward to that. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about The Witches 1990 and the book it's based on a little bit later. But first, we got to do what we always do and give our patrons some shout outs. We have two new patrons this week, and they are both $5 Hugo Award winners, which means they get access to our bonus content. And they are good old rock. Nothing beats that. And Jenna Schwartz. That's my sister. That's your sister. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah. That's Katie's sister. Uh, and good old rock, nothing beat that. That's a reference to our next coming, our Halloween bonus episode. Or our October, right? Bonus episode. Yeah. 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 What? Yes, I think. I think that's what that's a reference No, it 100% is. It's a reference to Over the Garden Wall. <laughs> I don't remember them saying that. Good old rock. Nothing beats that. The little kid says it. Okay. Yeah. At one point. He's like, good old rock. Nothing beats that. I can't do his voice. I don't <laughs> it's, know. It's He's a little impression. kid. He's yeah. a little kid. Anyways, I'm, I'm like 99% sure it's from that. Because um, I had the same thing. I was like, oh, I recognize that from something. And then I realized, I was like, oh, it's that thing we just watched the other day. <laughs> so I'm wrong. It's sorry. I. It's Bart Simpson or Bart, Lisa. Paper, scissors. Predictable Bart I think. always takes rock. Good old rock. Nothing beats that. I thought he said that in. He probably says something similar. Because he has the rock. Yeah. And I thought he said it in relation. Man. It's a rock fact. Rock fact. Yeah, rock fact. I remember that. I feel like. Man, maybe I'm. Never mind. No wonder I was. I needed to correct that. I needed to that. correct that on the record so that we don't get a million <laughs> messages about it. Sorry, it's Simpsons, which I've watched almost zero of, so there you go. Sorry. Uh, that bonus episode will be coming out before too terribly long, and we'll be joined on it by Jenna Schwartz. So look forward to that. Oh, as always, we have to celebrate our Academy Award-winning patrons, and they are Paul, Kat Ensminger, Ben Wilcox, Jeff Niederhofer, Ian from Wine Country, Ready for Spooky Season, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Young's Gratch, Just Gratz, Gratch, Shelby Says Tigers Are Halloween Aesthetic, V. Frank, and Alina Starkov. Are tigers Halloween aesthetic? I mean, they are orange orange and black, black, I guess, but I don't buy it. I will say that they don't immediately put me in mind of Halloween. No. But they are orange and black. Yes. Point taken. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We have our listener poll follow-up for Don't Look Now. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. On Patreon, we had zero votes for the book, three for the movie. Yep. Good old rock, nothing beats that, said, watched the movie but didn't read the book, so I can't say which is better. The thing I most enjoyed was just all the shots of Venice. It's such a magical looking place. It would be fun to get lost on those streets. 
I liked the scenery, but the story itself was a little boring. Uh, watch the movie, didn't read the book. Uh, most thing I enjoyed most, all the shots of Venice. It is a magical looking place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never been to Venice, um, but I, I would like to visit it one day before it <laughs> is swallowed by the ocean. <laughs> Better get on that. Yeah, that's true. We're running out of time there. On Facebook, we had zero response because uh, the Facebook... first time ever. No, we had zero response for Psycho too. Oh, didn't did we? we? Yeah, yeah. They're just uh, Facebook. Yeah, Facebook algorithm buries our posts. Uh, almost like nobody. Even Literally, saw like it. I looked at the numbers and like nobody saw it. Yeah, it's not even that like people aren't interacting. Like just almost none of our people saw it. Like it had like one fifth of the numbers of like normal yeah. posts. Of views and whatnot. I mean, I I need to figure out a different way to do polls on Facebook because I know they bury the ones with the little like react symbols on them anyway. I just need to come up with a different way to do it. But they also bury like their own poll feature. So I don't know why Facebook just doesn't want us to run polls. I mean, the other thing you could, I guess the only other thing you could do is just have people comment yeah what i mean they yeah prefer, i think that's and then and just do it on like an image post or something yeah. it's like the only way i can think to do it yeah i don't know i don't know on twitter we had two votes for the book and five for the movie shelby suderman said i'm going with the book because i preferred how much tighter the final scene was Main character thinks he sees a scared child fleeing a grown man. He follows her and bolts them inside the room before the man gets there. He tells her she's safe now. The man bangs on the door and identifies himself as a cop. The child is revealed to be an old woman. She smiles and throws the knife at him and he dies. I get that the movie is trying to drag out the moment for the suspense, but it was already a long movie, so it didn't work for me. To be fair, maybe it would have been different if I hadn't read the book and known what was going to happen. Yeah, it, and having not read the book, it worked for me. I didn't find mm-hmm. it particularly drawn out at all. Like, I, I didn't... There were moments in the movie, uh, you know, the movie has its lulls and its mm-hmm. things that are a little drawn out and tedious at times, but the ending wasn't one for me necessarily, so... I think that is kind of an interesting, like, stumbling block for an adaptation, though. Mm-hmm. Like, because, if yeah, if somebody has read the book then obviously that moment isn't going to work as well because they're like, yeah, they're like, okay, can we just get to the point? I know what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, On Instagram, we did not get any comments, but we did get four votes for the movie. Mm -hmm. None for the book. Movie trounced. A little bit. Uh, Our winner was the movie with 12 votes to the books too. Yep. We uh, got more votes than I thought we might for that property. So yeah, I was we were both (laughs) expecting not a particularly high turnout in terms of responses because, uh, you know, it's not the world's most well-known property to begin with. But I am really glad we did it because I actually really found the movie fascinating. And I thought despite the fact that it's a property that's lesser known, I was very happy with our episode. I thought it was one of the better episodes we've done in a while. Um, Not that the other ones are bad or anything. I just thought it was a particularly good episode and we had a lot of interesting discussions. Um, We just got to, we got to have better discussions about (laughs) more important properties. Not that we don't again. I just, I thought that was a good episode. So if you haven't listened to it, highly recommend going and checking it out. Even if you haven't seen the movie, I think you can get some interesting stuff out of it because we talk a lot about symbolism and and that sort of thing um, that I think even if you hadn't seen the movie or read the book that you could get something out of potentially. Mm -hmm. So cool. 
All right, it's time now to learn a little bit about authors who disappoint us. Rolled Doll Edition. Times are changing and I'm getting old. Are you gonna hold me accountable? My bed is empty and I'm getting cold. Isn't anybody gonna hold me accountable? Uh, I'm problematic. He's a problem. So we, we've done segments similar to this previously, mm-hmm. uh, most notably for Stephanie Meyer. And uh, we kind of did Tolkien. Yeah, a it, was, it was more focused on like Middle Earth Middle specifically. Earth, but, it, but he wrote Middle yes. Earth. So, yeah, it was about him. Uh, but this is something that I would like to make a more like semi-consistent learning things mm-hmm. sub-segment. Yeah. Uh, and I say semi-consistent because I, I don't think it's something that's necessary to do for every author. No. Um, not every author I don't know. Is... The more time they all spend on <laughs> yeah, Twitter, right. though. We say as we record on the day of Margaret Atwood showing her whole ass on Twitter. Right. That was today, right? Yes, that was okay. today. Um, maybe authors should just not be on Twitter. <laughs> no, they should, so we know who the assholes Fair are. Enough. But <laughs> um, So, I mean, I, I don't think, like, I, I hope every single author is not going to need a specific segment for yes. this. Yeah. Um, but, but I also think that some authors... You know, we can just include that, like, if we're doing, like, a biographical right. sketch of them. Yeah. And but, we have at times, like, I included some subnotes about, like, Hitchcock, about, right, like, yeah. some of the stuff with him and that, that sort of thing. But in this case, I do <laughs> feel that it's necessary. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, so I have settled on a name for this segment, mm-hmm. which is Authors Who Disappointed Us. And previously, I had used segment titles referring to, like, the idea of, like, a problematic fave. Right. And I don't think I want to use the word problematic for this anymore. Okay. Because... I feel that problematic has been a kind of diluted by the discourse. With the capital D discourse. Yes, yes, capital D discourse. And also because I want to refer to disappointment in these cases because that is what I feel. Mm-hmm. And I want to acknowledge that aspect of it because I think when we, and not even the necessarily we. we, I'm using like the royal we, mm-hmm. like everyone, I think when we don't acknowledge that aspect of it, it can sometimes come off like we're just listing transgressions right. for the sake of listing transgressions. Right. Like we're the woman from Game of Thrones ringing the bell <laughs> and saying shame. Yeah. When, But really when people point out things like this, what they're saying is, how dare you? Yeah. I trusted you. I found joy and safety in the worlds that you created. And this is who you turned out to be. Yeah. How dare you? Yeah. I'm not not <laughs> um, mad. I'm just disappointed. Attention to <laughs> Margaret Atwood today. <laughs> yeah. Um but also like like the the ideas that I have just expressed this that is about Roald Dahl um particularly for me because I read a ton of his books in my childhood um but also um about another author hmm? specifically Oh yeah, J.K. Rowling. Yeah. You could say her name. <laughs> I feel she who like, shall not be named. I feel like it gonna... invokes her. I don't. <laughs> yeah, it's you. You can't. You, nope. You got to be like Harry, and you, you can't give the name to power by not saying it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we've talked about. People have asked us numerous times. Yeah, we we still get questions about. If we are going to do a problematic Harry Potter slash J.K. Rowling. 
um, episode. episode. Because we had talked, we said we were going to do it during our Harry Potter run years ago, uh, several years yes. ago. Um, and and I th- there are a couple of reasons that we haven't. Yeah. One of one of the big ones is that at this point, we're so far removed from that series that we would have to reread and rewatch again. Yeah. And we are short on time and short on energy. Yeah. And I am short on patience for J.K. Rowling. I, I think there's several things. I think one, uh, I, I like you said, I think, and I actually think we had discussed that maybe that would be a thing to do one day down the road is mm-hmm. to revisit something like Harry Potter. Yeah. If we're still doing this podcast in 10 years or whatever, or five years or whatever, uh, and revisit it <laughs> through the lens of, uh, of that because it is one thing and I haven't listened back to our Harry Potter episodes I listened to them maybe the year after we published them the summer after I re-listened to them mm-hmm. um, but I haven't listened to them since then and it is one of those things you know that, I mean we were we were critical of things throughout at times like various things like yeah. uh, you know we we definitely at, at, uh, I remember having a, a, a not short discussion about the weird uh, about the subplot with the house elves and how it felt gross and mm-hmm. especially Hermione's subplot and and how all that played out with um the society for the protection of elvish elven welfare or whatever elvish welfare i think yeah, yeah whatever it is that whole subplot and about how weird that is and about the 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 slaves who like being slaves and yeah. all this sort of stuff and and we we touched on some of that throughout those episodes but overall those are very fawning positive episodes about both the series and Harry Potter or, and JK Rowling. And I, I don't dis, I don't, I would have to go back and listen. I don't know if I necessarily disagree with anything we said in those episodes still, or like, I don't know if my mind has changed on any of the things we said in that episode, maybe a few things here and there. Again, Mm -hmm. I'd have to listen. Um, So that may be something we would do one day down the road is if we did, it might just be interesting to revisit the whole series more critically now. Um, now that we've seen the person that J.K. Rowling is, uh, more so than we did at the time. And I think the other thing is that lots of ink has been spilled on this topic, uh, mm-hmm. both digitally, like, and I mean ink, like, proverbially, like, there have been millions of video essays and discussions and podcasts yeah. on this topic. Um, and I don't know how much we necessarily add to that conversation. Yeah. Uh, necessarily. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying we wouldn't have anything interesting to say. I'm just, uh, th- lots of this has been said on this topic by people who are from the communities that she specifically has been an asshole about, mm-hmm. where we are not, generally speaking, mm-hmm. like in general. Um, I'm sure she's, it wouldn't surprise me if <laughs> she has some specific other. Uh, <laughs> Uh, hang-ups that we may or may not fall into. Uh, we are poor, so I guess there's that. She probably fucking hates poor people. She's a billionaire now. But um, anyways, uh, I, I don't know how much necessarily we could add to that conversation beyond there are plenty of, of um, like I said, creators and and writers and, and podcasters from the marginalized communities that, that she has uh, been an, an, an asshole about um, that have had their own things to say about mm-hmm. it. So I just don't know how much we would add, I guess yeah. is my point. And, I, and another thing is that she just keeps going. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I like, think it sounds weird to say, but like, I kind of feel like anything we make would immediately be out of date. Yes. <laughs> she yeah. just, just keeps, keeps on trucking. Yeah. And and it is uh, it would be interesting too to revisit because I I do I think partially because the fact that I am not from a community that 
is the target of her ire. Um, I don't have a difficult time personally, and it's mm-hmm. different for everybody. And I, whatever works for you, I don't have a difficult time personally divorcing her her from the franchise. Yeah. And we talked a little. You, you had posted when when this all blew up initially um, months ago, years ago, even at this point, you had yeah. made a post about. Uh, and I don't, I don't want to try to go find it or quote it or anything. Um, but I, I'm able to still enjoy the series in spite of her, I think, in mm-hmm. a way that if other people aren't, that's fine. And I and, and I don't begrudge them at all. In fact, I, that that's good for you. <laughs> like, it's probably better that you don't. Um, but I still do find a lot of things that I like in the series and, and, and messaging that I like that I... I don't know. And maybe that would be an interesting conversation to have is to approach that angle of it, of mm-hmm. of kind of figuring out how you divulge the author right. in a way that you can. And if, if for something, it was such a pivotal part of my childhood. I don't well, know how I, I could. I and it's think, easy for me, like I said, because yeah. I'm not I'm the least affected by anything she said in terms of like. And of I, the but I do think that that is like. You know, like different communities notwithstanding, I think that is something that makes it difficult for people in our age group who, for where the series was so Uh, pivotal to our childhood, that it it becomes like, like we don't know how to deal with it. Yeah. Because you can't undo the fact that something was so important and pivotal to you. Yeah at a very um, developmental part of your life. Like you, you yeah. can't change the fact that that happened. Yeah. So it becomes this tricky thing of like, well, how do I grapple with this moving forward? And, it, it would actually and be, I don't know what the answer yeah, is. Yeah. It'd actually be interesting to listen here. It's easy for me. And I, and I like sort of acknowledge my privilege. It's easy for me to be like, yeah, I still enjoy the series and get a lot out of it. And I just ignore the shit. She's, I don't ignore it. I just say she's a dumbass and, and fuck her and still enjoy the books or whatever. Um, but that's easy for me to say. I think it would be interesting to hear from people who are, you know, from trans people or, or um, whoever who, cause it's not just trans people, but who are sort of more the direct target of, of her, uh, her disdain um, and, and find and see how, cause there, I'm sure there are plenty of trans people who still do very much enjoy the series mm-hmm. in spite of her, maybe to spite her. I don't know, <laughs> which I think would be an interesting <laughs> we- which would be an interesting sort of dynamic to hear discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, I know it has been. I'm not saying it would be the first or anything. But um, th- I think that would be maybe the angle to revisit it and revisit J.K. Rowling. Otherwise, yeah. Yeah. It's, there's plenty has been said. Yeah. So all that to say, <laughs> let's talk about Roald Dahl, an author who disappointed us. Content warnings for anti-Semitism, particularly, uh, but also racism and misogyny. Nice. Yeah, we're really uh, got some heavy hitters here. Nice. All right. So we're going to tackle that anti-Semitism first because it's it's the big one. It's the big the one. main one. Mm-hmm. So in a 1983 article that appeared in Literary Review... Dahl reviewed Tony Clifton's God Cried, which is a photography book uh, about the siege of West Beirut by the Israeli army during the 1982 Lebanon War. Mm-hmm. 
in his review, <laughs> um, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna read some choice quotes here. Uh, if you don't want to hear it, totally get it. Um, fast forward. Skip forward a, a, a few, few minutes. minutes. Yeah. In his review, Dahl stated that at that point in time, a quote race of people had never quote switched so rapidly from victims to barbarous murderers. He also wrote that the United States was, quote, so utterly dominated Mm -hmm. by the great Jewish financial institutions that they dare not defy Israelis. And this is important. Dahl's phraseology in his original copy, in his original text that he wrote, had been altered by the editor of the Literary Review, who substituted Israel for Jews and Israeli for Jewish. Well, okay, so wait. So Dahl, With, what had Dahl written, and what did the editor change it to? So I'm Dahl confused. had originally used like they dare not defy Jews. Okay, so he had yeah. used Jews and, and the Jewish editor, financial yes, institutions, and the, and the editor changed, changed it, it to, to Israel, Israel Israelis. Okay. And Dahl and himself also attempted to mitigate his words. It's a, it's a great attempt to mitigate <laughs> by stating, I am not anti-Semitic. I am anti-Israel. I mean, and yeah, that Israel is a whole other ball of worms yeah. that I'm not educated enough to speak on. And especially now, because no, more I, things have happened. I agree, now. but I, I I think there is an interesting conversation we had there. I think that the damning part is the fact that it was apparently the editor that replaced Jewish and and Jews or whatever for Israeli and Israel. Right. As a, well, that's damning, but also so utterly dominated by the great Jewish financial. Yes, like bro, yes, it yes, kind of sounds yes. like you're just anti-Semitic. Yes, absolutely. There, there's it's it's one of those things where it's it's it, it very clearly the language there comes across not as somebody critiquing the very yeah the uh, state of Israel, the very problematic yes, but rather <laughs> state of Israel. And I say problematic jokingly. That's that's a, yeah. a massive undersell uh, of of the situation going on over there to call Israel problematic. Um, I, but yes, I, cause there is obviously, and this is the thing that happens in modern times. It becomes very difficult. It's, it's, you know, you get that weird dichotomy of, it, um, of, of people on the right tend to be both staunch defenders of Israel, but also anti-Semitic, yeah. whereas people on the left tend to be staunch or, or on the left, like, and I mean, left, in a grander sense and not like the American left um, tend to be more anti-Israel um, mm-hmm. because of the terrible things that Israel has and is doing um, and the oppression that they've uh, uh, carried out on the Palestinian people. That being said, it's it, it, there's a way to critique Israel yeah. and the state of Israel and the actions of the country right. that does not trade on very clear it, yeah. uh, racist dog whistles of the oh, Semitic yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. So during the fallout from that article, Dahl told a journalist from the New Statesman, quote, there's a trait in the Jewish character that does provoke animosity. Maybe it's a kind of lack of generosity towards non-Jews. I mean, there is always a reason why anti-anything crops up anywhere. Even a stinker like Hitler 
didn't just pick on them Oof. for no reason. Woof. Yeah. Woof. <laughs> just anytime you're going to say there's a trait in blank race, just stop and think for a second about that. <laughs> like, regardless <laughs> of the race and how great a thing you think it could be. In this case, it's not. But, yeah, uh, that's that's not good. Um, and, yeah, <laughs> you don't... <laughs> What's that? What's that famous tweet? As a matter of fact, you don't have to hand it to to, uh, to Hitler for any goddamn reason or whatever. There's that whatever that tweet is. Yeah. Um, then in 1990, during an interview with the Independent, Dahl explained that his issue with Israel began when they invaded Lebanon in 1982. Quote, they killed 22,000 civilians when they bombed Beirut. It was very hushed up in the newspapers because they are primarily Jewish owned. I'm certainly anti-Israel and I've become anti-Semitic in as much as that you get a Jewish person in another country like England strongly supporting Zionism. I think they should see both sides. It's the same old thing. We all know about the Jews and the rest of it. There aren't any non-Jewish publishers anywhere. They control the media. Jolly clever thing to do. That's why the president of the United States has to sell all this stuff to Israel. Boy, it bounces so, back and forth so much between like, okay, oh, nope, nope, oh, God, no, okay. Like, where I'm like, all right, I, uh, nope, nope, now you're Nazi, okay, great. So, like, the thing, like you said, there is a way to be critical of Israel, and yeah. I think we should be critical of Israel, because <laughs> yes. Israel as a state has done some pretty fucking terrible things. As has a lot of countries, but yes. yes. So it's not, yes. But we should be critical of that. Yes. However, there's no reason that that criticism should have to trade on anti-semitic uh stereotypes no, like no. the like jewish people control no. the banks and the it, media it very quickly devolves into yeah. a race essentialism that is is just wrong and stupid and and very obviously like definitionally racist like as soon as you start in, in um attributing inherent yeah. like any sort of inherent properties to a given race or sect of people or whatever you're spoilers, you're racist. Like that's what <laughs> like that's. And I, and I mean that in the broad sense of, and the colloquial sense of racist, not the more academic sense yeah. that I understand and can be very much getting into like conspiracy theory yes. here as yeah. well. Yeah. So this article and the ensuing fallout aren't the only examples of Dahl's anti-Semitism, uh, but I don't think we need to go through every single one in detail. Um, <laughs> I'm not interested in conflicting <laughs> that kind of trauma. Um, I, I hit the really big ones. Yeah. I will add that a few of his works to watch out for on this particular front are his first novel, Sometime Never, and a 1945 short story entitled Madame Rosette. Uh, so if you feel like you need to investigate some particularly uh, salient examples from his own work, or if you just want to know what to avoid, my understanding is that those are two of the big ones, mm -hmm. like from his own catalog. In 2020, nearly three decades after Dahl's death, the Dahl estate published a statement on the official World Dahl website apologizing for his anti-Semitism. The statement reads... 
The Dahl family and the Roald Dahl Story Company deeply apologize for the lasting and understandable hurt caused by some of Roald Dahl's statements. Those prejudiced remarks are incomprehensible to us and stand in marked contrast to the man we knew and to the values at the heart of Roald Dahl's stories, which have positively impacted young people for generations. We hope that, just as he did at his best, at his absolute worst, Roald Dahl can help remind us of the lasting impact of words. Okay. It was a little wishy-washy in the middle, but yeah. I but the ending I was a good you know, we hope it's, that at his best, you know, just as he did his best. It's not the worst apology I've ever read. It's also not the best it's apology like I said, the, I've the ever middle, read. The middle's a little wishy-washy um, and a little sort of, I don't know, I, I, not, yeah, not the best. But the ending, I think, is really, like, really poignant in, in terms of, like, um, you know, sort of reminding you know I, again just we hope that just as he did at his best at his absolute worst acknowledging that it was the worst of him um and that and that words do have impact i think there's a lot of in that last sentence there's a lot of good sentiment there but yeah it's a, it's it's a, it's a little mixed <laughs> uh, while this apology was received with appreciation by some jewish groups um, other jewish organizations such as the campaign against anti-semitism noted that quote for his family and estate to have waited 30 years to make an apology apparently until lucrative deals were signed with hollywood is disappointing and sadly rather more comprehensible further adding that it was a shame that the estate had seen fit mere to apologize for doll's anti-semitism rather than use its substantial means to do anything about it and indeed i couldn't find any evidence that um the estate had done anything other than just issue this apology. And that is disappointing considering that they do have the means to do more. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about a well-funded organization that is already primarily focused on advocacy and charity work. They could do more. Yeah. Uh, moving out of anti-Semitism, uh, perhaps more well-known accusation of racism on Dahl's part is the Oompa Loompas in Charlie uh -huh. and the Chocolate Factory. In 1972, Eleanor Cameron, another children's book author, published an article in The Horn Book criticizing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in which she took issue with the depiction of the Oompa Loompas as imported African slaves and suggested that teachers look for better literature to use in the classroom. Um, in 1973, Dahl posted a reply to her article calling Cameron's accusations, quote, insensitive and monstrous. What? Pardon me, what? <laughs> um, the Hornbook. You're the then... real racist. What? <laughs> uh, hmm. The Hornbook <laughs> then published a response from Cameron in which she clarified that she intended her article not to be a personal attack on Dahl, but to point out that the book, is, the book, though a work of fiction, still influences reality, writing, The situation of the Oompa Loompas is real. It could not be more so, and it is anything but funny. Boy, it's, it's good to know that, the, that the, the discourse with a capital D has not changed in iota since the 70s. It's all the same. We're times a flat circle. Yeah, like, <laughs> how, that thing you wrote was racist. How dare, how dare you? you? That's super insensitive and monstrous of you to say that I was maybe a little racist. Okay. Okay, dude. <laughs> Great. Um, another Cold 1991 more. article by Michael Durda published in the Washington Post 
echoed Cameron's con- uh, comments, writing, the Oompa Loompas reveal virtually every stereotype about blacks. Um, and it is, you know, there's a reason they changed that for both of the movies. Yeah. Well, I actually, and I don't recall, I know when we did the episode, but I actually don't recall what the original, like, what what originally what was going on there. The Oompa Loompas in the book are basically like um, tiny, uh, uh, like pygmy. Um, yeah, and I don't, like I don't know if I don't yeah, know they're like kind of, kind of a like, pygmy stereotype. They're, they're like small, um, like like typical, like a native stereotype. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like I, yeah. like wearing leaves. Right, and, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think I'm pretty sure it's been a long time since I read Charlie and the Chocolate. It's been since we did that episode, which I remember zero yeah. percent of. Yeah, so I said um, I don't remember any of it. That so. was like a very early episode. It was, yeah, it was like a, one of our did. first ten or something. Um, I'm pretty sure the text does say that he found the Oompa Loompas in Africa. Yeah, I, th- I think it was, I do vaguely remember something about that. I think you mentioned that. I just, I don't remember the details. I'm sure we it. talked about yeah. it, but I don't remember the yeah. conversation at all. Yeah. Uh, Durda's article also discussed many of the other criticisms of Dahl's writing as well, including his alleged misogyny. Uh, he wrote, The Witches verges on general misogyny. However, Una Malley's 2008 article argued that there are feminist passages in Dahl's work, even if they may be obscured, writing, The Witches offers up plenty of feminist complexities. The witches themselves are terrifying and vile things, and always women. The book is often viewed as sexist, but that sentiment, that assessment ignores one of the heroines of the story, the child narrator's grandmother. Now, I think it's also pertinent to mention that while... The Witches has been primarily accused of garden variety misogyny. Mm-hmm. It also makes use of some European witch stereotypes, which are heavily rooted in, you guessed it, mm-hmm. anti-Semitism. Yep. Uh, Michelle Landsberg's 1998 article analyzed the alleged issues in Dahl's work, um, stating... Throughout his work, evil, domineering, smelly, fat, ugly women are his favorite villains. And I don't know if I necessarily agree with that statement because I think it might just be a smidge too broad. Um, His villains aren't always female, and he has also written plenty of female heroines. Yeah. Uh, And I would also say that the fat phobia, which is definitely present in his works, isn't just attached to female characters. Yeah. Um, and that fat phobia is a persistent issue in children's literature in general. And I especially notice it, notice it in British children's literature for some reason. But that is a learning thing segment yeah. for another day. Yeah. For now, let's transition into talking about the witches. From the incredible imagination of Jim Henson and director <laughs> Nicholas Rogue comes a fascinating new fantasy adventure. The Witches. For when a little boy accidentally stumbles into their secret world, he finds they've got a lot more power than he ever imagined. (laughs) The Witches is a 1983 British children's dark fantasy novel by Roald Dahl 
whom we have just talked about. Stand-up guy from everything I've heard. <laughs> uh, Dahl did not work on the novel alone. He was aided by editor Stephen Roxburgh, who helped rework The Witches. Uh, Roxburgh's advice was very extensive and covered areas such as improving plot, tightening up the writing, and reinventing characters. The novel is also a departure from Dahl's usual all-problem-solving finish um, that's featured in a lot of his other children's books. Character of the Grandmother was modeled after Sophie Dahl, the author's mother. The novel received mainly positive reviews in the United States with a few warnings due to the more fear-inducing parts of the book. Mm. Um, some mixed receptions were the result of Dahl's depiction of the witches being monstrous in characterization. The Witches was banned by some libraries due to its perceived misogyny that we mentioned earlier. Uh, despite The Witches' original success, it began to be challenged and not long as after its publication due to the perceived viewpoint that witches are a sexist concept. It appears on the American Library Association list of the 100 most frequently challenged books of 1990 to 1999 at number 22. In 2012, The Witches was... So that would ostensibly be challenges. I would imagine most of the books on the most frequently challenged books are challenged by conservatives. Um, but if I had to guess. Probably most of them, yeah. So this might be a, a rare example that would not be... Yeah, that would probably, yeah, probably be, yeah, be challenged, challenged by, by more, more liberal like liberal circles. groups. Yeah. In 2012, The Witches was ranked number 81 among all-time children's novels in a survey published by School Library Journal, which is a monthly with a primarily U.S. audience. Uh, it was the third of four books by Roald Dahl among that top 100. In November 2019, the BBC listed The Witches on its list of the 100 most influential novels. There are a few interesting academic readings of The Witches, which is considered more complex than the typical doll children's novel, I suspect due to the influence of his editor that we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. One perspective offered by Castleton University professor James Curtis addresses the novel's focus on child hate and Dahl's reluctance to shield children from such a reality, um, which is a recurring theme throughout his children's books, is kind of that, like, no-holds-barred um, look at the brutality of the world. Yeah. Uh, the scholar argues that the book showcases a treatment of children that is not actually worse than historical and modern examples. As the boy's grandmother informs him, the witches usually strike children when they are alone. Curtis uses the inf this information from the novel to connect to the historical problem of child abandonment. Huh. As children have been maimed and killed due to abandonment, children are harmed by witches in the novel when they have been left alone, huh. when they're parents or guardians aren't taking care of right. them. Another analysis done by Union College professor Jennifer Mitchell suggests that the novel is a powerful tool for children to learn about right. gender identity. Mitchell makes the argument that the transition of the narrator and Bruno Jenkins into mice and their caretakers' different reactions to such a transition offers to readers the possible outcomes of queer children. While the boy's grandmother is supportive of his new mouse state, Bruno Jenkins' parents react aggressively against their son's own transition. 
which is an interesting analogy, but not one that I'm sure a young child would I, glean from the text. I was going to say that would be one you would have to, I feel like, would take some, like, some accompanying parsing, yeah. reading and, yeah. like, some, like, some input from a uh, an older uh, mentor yeah. to kind of get that. I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, yeah. But maybe I, I was is, a dumb kid. It, I don't know. It's but. an interesting, I think it's yeah, a really interesting, interesting read on it, but it, I'm not sure that, like... A six-year-old reading this book would get that from the text. Maybe upon rereading it Yeah, like later in life. Yeah. yeah. Uh, In addition to the 1990 film that we'll be discussing, the novel has also been adapted into a 2008 radio drama, a 2008 opera, which highly fascinates me. Wow. And a 2020 film. Mm Mm-hmm. And speaking of, The 1990 film did win in our listener's choice, kind of by a landslide, uh, which didn't really surprise me uh, because our our generation, our our demographic on this podcast tends to skew millennial. Yeah. Our age. Our age, yeah. Um, And those are, that's a group of people that's going to remember this film from their childhood. Yes. But... If you really had your heart set on the 2020 version, then you will be pleased to Good hear. News. You will be pleased to hear that we'll be discussing that film on our Patreon at the beginning of November. Um, so we we won't be doing like a, a regular kind no. of comparison It'll be like the episode. And the Beast episode we yeah, do. we'll we'll be having a conversation about it um, and talking about it in relation to both the novel and the 1990 film. Yeah. Exactly kind of the same deal uh, with the 2017 Beauty and the Beast episode we Mm -hmm. put out a few months ago. So, cool. Uh, And our our bonus Patreon episodes are available starting at the $5 level. Yep. Five bucks a month, you get access to all that bonus content. And even even if you just want to jump on for the month of November to listen to that, our feelings will not be hurt if you jump right back off. Yep. We appreciate it nonetheless. All right. As you mentioned, the 1990 version won our listener poll. So let's go ahead and learn a little bit more about that movie right now. Grandma, it's me, Luke. Luke. They turned me into a mouse. Oh, my. Who's the Grand High Witch? Join Luke on his remarkable journey. Bye. Now, the witches are on his tail. Whoa. And he must scurry around their evil plots. Oh. Squeak past every danger. Finally setting the trap that will save the world from the witches. The Witches is a 1990 film directed by Nicholas Regg, most known for Don't Look Now. Bad Timing, A Sensual Obsession, and Walkabout. We did not plan this. No. I mentioned this on our last prequel episode as I was doing the research. I was like, oh, he's doing The Witches. And I had to cut it out because we hadn't announced what the next episode was yet. Uh, But I thought that was funny. Like a really weird coincidence. It is really weird. And like (laughs) if you had showed me a list of all of the episodes I had planned out for this year, and asked me to guess which two had the same director, the same director yeah. that weren't like a series that like we did, the Hunger that we, Games. Or that you didn't obviously know yeah. had the same director. Yeah. I never in a million years would have nope. guessed those two yeah, movies. The, don't look down on the witches. There you go. <laughs> uh, it was written by Alan Scott, who also wrote Don't Look Now, The Preacher's Wife, Contiki, and very recently uh, he was the series creator for The Queen's Gambit. Hmm. So I thought that was interesting. 
the film stars Angelica Houston, Mai Zetterling, Jason Fisher, and Rowan Atkinson. And a bunch of other people, but those are the main, the main stars. The film actually has a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. I looked, I was like, that seems crazy high. I think this one is remembered pretty fondly. Uh, and I went, and it, it has 40 reviews. So not a ton, but not like, I was like, well, maybe it has like, you know, eight reviews mm-hmm. or something. And, and, but no, it has a 40 reviews. And yeah, it's a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, a 78 on Metacritic, and a 6.9 on IMDb. So uh, better scored by critics than by uh, general audiences. Uh, the film made $15.3 million against a budget of $11 million, according to the AFI catalog, because it wasn't listed on Wikipedia or anywhere. I had to do some Googling and searching to find that budget. Uh, this was the final film that Jim Henson personally worked on before his death, and it was the last film based on Dahl's work before his death. Dahl and Henson both died in the same year, 1990. Hmm. The film featured special puppeteer work from a bunch of well-known puppeteers, including, and I had to include this because I thought this was really interesting. Obviously, we I always list like the actors and stuff, but in a movie like this, we have puppeteers because mm-hmm. um, this is a Henson production. Uh, and they included Don Austin, who worked on Little Shop of Horrors, Muppet Christmas Carol, uh, where he was the ghost of Christmas present and the ghost of Christmas yet to come, Labyrinth, and Star Wars Episode One. Uh, Brian Henson, who's the son of Jim Henson uh, and runs Henson Studios, uh, who uh, worked on Little Shop of Horrors, Return to Oz, Labyrinth, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and The Muppet Christmas Carol. Sue Daker, who worked on Labyrinth, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze, uh, Muppet Christmas Carol, Alice in Wonderland, the new one, I believe, mm. um, and Neverending Story 3. Rob Rigner, who worked on Labyrinth, both uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1 and 2, Christmas Carol, uh, Muppet Christmas Carol, The Flintstones, Muppet Treasure Island, George of the Jungle, the one with, uh, with Brendan Fraser, Brendan Fraser uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and another movie that we did, Where the Wild Things Are. So nice. several movies we've done in there. Yeah. Three that we've done? Uh, Christmas Carol, Hitchhiker's Christmas, Guide, and yeah. Where the w- Wild Things Are? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Steve Whitmire, who was on worked on Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, Muppet Christmas Carol, Muppet Treasure Island, Muppets Most Wanted, and a million other Muppet things. So tons of Muppet people. Uh, I spent like way too long on Muppet Wiki, looking at <laughs> looking at these people's histories, which you can go and actually see. Along with like what all they worked on, these people also have like what they what characters mm-hmm. they did on those. I just didn't include that because it would have been yeah, that would have twenty been, paragraphs yeah. long, but. Um, but anyway, super, super fascinating. And there was more people. Those were just like the biggest names that worked on like a ton of big movies and stuff. So um, during the shoot, I mentioned earlier that Rowan Atkinson stars in the film. Rowan Atkinson, most famously Mr. Bean, mm-hmm. uh, among other things. But most most people will recognize him as Mr. Bean. Uh, he actually caused a Mr. Bean style calamity in his hotel room when he left the bathroom tap running or the bath tap running in his hotel room. Uh, and a, a porter came knocking on the door, uh, and he uh, apparently Rowan Atkinson was sleeping and told him to go away. Um, uh, ended up flooding the hotel, and it much of the production team's electrical equipment that was being stored on the floor below ended up getting oh, ruined. Yikes! <laughs> because he flooded this bathroom. It's a good thing he's Mr. Bean yep. and not just some guy. Yep. <laughs> 
Uh, so this is interesting because this movie is famously creepy and spooky and weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, director Nicholas Rogue uh, would later cut scenes that he thought were too scary for children after seeing his young son's reaction to the original cut of the film. Um, so you, the version we're getting is the is, toned, is down the toned down version. Have you seen this movie? No, I, I've not seen it. I have not read. I know nothing I about it. Have seen this movie. Um, it is one of the great nightmares of my childhood. <laughs> it is wild to me that there was a scarier version of this yes. movie. That's I, I'd always heard that, you know, people like I never saw this as a kid for whatever reason or at any point. Um, and so but I'd always heard people say how like crazy and mm-hmm. weird and, and scary it was. Um, and yeah, apparently this is the toned down version. So uh, the elaborate makeup effects for uh, Angelica Houston's Grand High Witch character took six hours to apply and another six hours to remove. I believe that. Those prosthetics included a full face mask, a hump, mechanized claws, and a withered collarbone. Uh, uh, Houston described uh, a monologue scene that she had to do where, quote, I was so uncomfortable and tired of being encased in rubber under hot lights for hours that the lines had had ceased to make sense to me and all I wanted to do was cry, end Aww. quote. Uh, so the makeup on the film, mentioning the makeup, was done by uh, Christine Beveridge, Lindsay McGowan, Stephen Norrington, and Nigel Booth, which if you go look them up, they have lots of credits on lots of things, um, but they were nothing, no, nobody that I recognize, which I... If, if I'm remembering right, the makeup in the movie is quite good yes uh from i have i have seen some moments from the film like completely devoid of context Mm -hmm. in places but i've just yeah i've seen like some of the the like makeups and stuff um but i specifically wanted to go see if anybody that i recognize worked on it because as we've talked about before we're big fans of the show called face off and we end up seeing lots of they yeah. end up bringing on guest makeup yeah, artists of, all the time, like movie famous movie people. And it wasn't anybody there recognized. But but one of them had worked on all of the Hunger Games movies, which mm. is what V. Neal had worked on all the Hunger. She was like the head makeup artist for all the Hunger Games movies. So they probably worked together and probably knew each other. Yeah. It's not that big of an industry. Uh, so Roald Dahl was apparently incensed that Nicholas Rogue had changed his original ending from the book in the script of the film. But before they filmed... Uh, and as a gesture of reconciliation, Rogue offered to film two versions of the ending before he made his final choice, the book version and the movie version. Uh, apparently, after filming the book version, upon watching the scene that was loyal to his book, Roald Dahl was so moved that he was brought to tears. However, Rogue decided to go with the changed <laughs> ending, which led to Dahl demanding that his name be removed entirely from the credits and he went on to threaten a publicity campaign against the film. He also apparently angrily expressed to the producers how, quote, appalled he was at the, quote, vulgarity, bad taste, and actual terror in certain parts of the film. Uh, and it was ultimately only dissuaded from sort of like going after them and suing them and whatnot by uh, Jim Henson, who was hmm. like friends with him, I guess, and was like, hey, man. <laughs> Come on, man. Come on, man. Uh, so Lissy Dahl, uh, it's Roald Dahl's daughter, I believe, um, has stated that Roald Dahl never again requested someone for a role in his book after uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory denied his request to cast Spike Milligan, who I looked up, um, cast Spike Milligan as um, Wonka, mm-hmm. who I looked up and was like some old TV movie actor yeah. that I had never, you know was popular in like the thirties or forties or whatever. I do vaguely remember talking about him. Or, uh, that's probably too old. He's probably like popular in like wanting... the fifties or something. Yeah, Gene, yeah Wilder. Gene Wilder. Just the worst decision ever. <laughs> Imagine being the guy who was like, no, Gene Wilder, no. Good call. Great job, Roald Dahl. <laughs> Not your only uh, questionable uh, <laughs> choice, apparently, but... 
Um, but he was ecstatic when Angelica Houston was cast as the Grand High Witch, as she had actually been Roald Dahl's personal favorite for the role. Hmm. Um, somebody else that was considered for the role, I didn't write this down, I just remembered this, uh, considered for the role of the Grand High Witch was Cher. <laughs> okay, I can, yeah, I yep. can see that. <laughs> Uh, so this is a, an interesting fact that I found. Apparently, uh, many of the witches in one of the meetings of the witches, I don't, I, I don't know the context for this, are actually men in women's clothing, mm. which there's a lot to, a lot to unpack a lot there. To, yep. A lot to think on there. Yep. A lot to chew on with yep. that one. Again, I don't know the context of any <laughs> of it, so who knows? Um, but yeah, it came across me. I was like, well, that doesn't sound great. Uh, so the German title of this film, apparently, and I thought this was too fun, is Hexen Hexen, which literally translates to witches practicing witchcraft. As they do. I assume Hexen is like plural for witch, like yeah. witches. Witches, and witches gonna witches witch. Witches be I believe, is literally <laughs> the German translation. Witches be witchin. Hexen Hexen. Which is witching. Like, it's got to be which is witching. That's got to be actually what it means. Like, yeah. that's got to be the more direct witch translation. Is but they, that like, they translated it to witches practice witchcraft, which, sure, that might be like a, a, a more correct, but I feel like actually it's just witches witching. That's yeah. like literally I, yeah. what, yeah. I mean, just based on hex and hexen, yeah. I would have to guess. You have to guess, yeah. Which I thought was great. If this movie was called Witches Witching, would be fantastic. Or Witches Witching. Uh, and then finally, a flashback to our never-ending story series. Uh, the Witches appeared on our top ten list of most traumatizing children's movie, sharing the number eight spot with a handful of other films. Uh, this was—I didn't write this. What the fuck no, is happening? I added this. <laughs> I was like, I, I started reading it, and then I was like, wait a second, I didn't write this. My I just brain... wanted to mention it. Go ahead. Um, so in the pre <laughs> in the prequel to our our really confused me in the prequel to uh, the Neverending Story Part Two. Um, so yes. If, if you didn't listen to that one and you want to hear more about this, yes, that's the one to listen to. We did. Uh, yeah, you I, did I a did, very scientific. I did a very scientific research yes. segment where I looked up um, which films had been most often cited as, as like, like traumatizing, traumatizing children's whatever. movies, yeah. um, and I did a top ten, and The Witches was in the number eight spot along with a couple other movies. There you go. Fascinating. All right, uh, before we wrap up and tell you where you can watch it, we want to remind you, you can do us a giant favor by heading over to patreon.com, supporting us there, and uh, you'll get access to our coverage of uh, one coming up this month, um, Over the Garden Wall. We'll be discussing that with uh, guest host Jenna Schwartz, who is a mega fan of the the miniseries. Mm -hmm. And then also, next month, we'll be covering the 2020 version of The Witches, so if you... Um, have seen that and want to hear our thoughts on it we'll be talking about it in november and you get all that access to all that starting at five dollars a month uh, also do us a favor go follow us on social media especially on facebook and find our freaking polls <laughs> and vote on them it's fine stupid facebook i think i don't know for sure i think if you follow the page instead of just liking, liking it, it yeah you might be able to like set up like notifications for when we post right. or like control how yeah. often you see posts yeah. so maybe give that a try yep. if you're if you're following like if that's where you primarily interact with us yeah because i know we have a handful of people who only follow us on facebook yeah. so there you go uh all right katie where can people watch it 
Well, as always, you can check in with your local library. I feel like there's a pretty good chance they'll have this one. Yeah, you would think. Or if you still have a local video rental store. Which we don't anymore. Which we don't anymore. Which I just realized the other day. I drove past it and there was a different sign. I was like, wait, yeah. what? Uh, but if you still have a video rental store, uh, check with them. Support them. They need it. Uh, otherwise, you can stream this with a subscription to HBO Max. Or you can rent it for around 3 to $4 on Amazon, YouTube, Vudu, Redbox, Apple TV, AMC Theaters On Demand, or DirecTV. There you go. Those are all the places you can watch it. And in one week's time, we're talking about 1990s The Witches by Roald Dahl. Well, the book by Roald Dahl. Uh, it should be fun. It should be interesting. It should be a good spooky Halloween episode. Mm-hmm. I'm very excited the for The spookiest part it. all along was the misogyny. <laughs> and, the, and the anti-Semitism. And the anti-Semitism, yeah. <laughs> uh. yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it'll be fun. Uh, so come back in one week's time and uh, join us for that discussion. And until that time, guys, gals, non-binary pals, everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.